Hello and welcome to episode three of the Cycling Business Podcast. When I first came up with the idea for this podcast, there was one topic that was firmly top of my list to explore in more detail, namely consumer direct sales in the bike business. It's an area close to my heart after my time spent at Canyon, where I saw firsthand the advantages and some of the challenges in consumer direct sales. But this is about more than just Canyon. The acquisition of Chain Reaction by Wiggle and Trek and Giant's new click and collect services are all driving online sales and squeezing the local bike shop harder. While I'm a strong advocate of the model, I firmly believe it can coexist with traditional retail. So in this episode, I wanted to bring together some guests from both sides of the debate to explore this topic further. So first up, let's meet our guests. We have Brendan Quirk, founder of Competitive Cyclists, one of the trailblazers in the online retail business in the US, and now president of Rafa North America. And we're also joined by Eric Bjorling, who's Brand Communications Director at Trek. So welcome. Thank you. So I guess I just wanted to start off by giving you each a chance to just give us a little bio, explain, you know, briefly kind of um, your history in the industry, um, how you've been involved in, in, um, in the sort of direct consumer side of things. Just, just give us a little, uh, a little brief intro. So maybe Brendan wants to start. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I have been involved in bikes and cycling since the Greg LeMond era, the late 80s, um, and started racing my bike back then. And in the uh, mid-90s, was working in a bike shop uh, in my hometown of Little Rock, Arkansas. Uh, I was definitely in uh, very much in love with riding bikes, racing bikes, talking about bikes. This is kind of in the pre-Lance Armstrong boom. Um, so because of that, the, the, you know, the overall road population, I would say nationwide was fairly small and it was definitely small where I was in Little Rock. So I turned to the internet very early on, um, you know, listserv groups and Usenet forums and things like that, just to find kindred spirits who wanted to talk about, you know, lug frames and Campy Nouveau record and all that kind of good stuff. Um, and from those conversations started to, you know, sell some products here and there in the, uh, in the late nineties using the internet in that form and that early kind of prehistoric form as the conduit for doing some commerce out of the back of a, a small little two man bike shop that uh, I was running with a good friend of mine. And it's the classic one thing leads to another. And we started importing SRMs before SRM actually had an operation here in the U S and, started selling some harder to find exotic, you know, Italian stuff. And from there, just, uh, you know, tried to, you, you, I would say got into more mainstream, uh, products, selling them online, uh, direct to consumers in, uh, I guess it's about 2003, roughly we closed our retail operations our brick and mortar operations because out of the front door of our bike shop, we were actually selling, you know, specialized, you know, body geometry helmets and shoes and things like that. Uh, we were, you know, we had a good spell as a Trek dealer actually um, in the kind of the height of the, the U.S. postal uh, craze. Sold a lot of OCLVs back then. Um, but then we had this whole online business. We couldn't sell Trek, couldn't sell specialized because their focus was on their brick and mortar dealer networks. And so we had a choice to make. Um, do we want to continue to have this kind of double life as a normal bike shop out the front door and a, uh, or and an internet business with a different set of the brands, uh, out the back door, or do we want to put all of our eggs into the internet basket? And, uh, we chose the latter. We went all in with our online business. Um, and we did that until 2011 and we, uh, sold our company competitive cyclists to our biggest competitor, a company called backcountry.com. Um, I, we moved from Little Rock out to Park City, Utah, which is the head, where the headquarters and the home of Backcountry is. I served on the executive team of Backcountry for a few years and uh, took some time off after that to enjoy the, the roads and the trails and the ski slopes of Park City and took about a year off. And then um, my friend Simon Mottram, the founder and CEO of Rafa, uh, offered me the opportunity to get involved with uh, Rafa's business, uh, both in terms of uh, really helping accelerate its growth in North America, but also helping with some 
global e-commerce initiatives as well. And uh, I'm currently doing that now. So having a great time doing what I love, love cycling, love riding my bike, love the bike industry and um, excited about this new chapter we're in. Good, good stuff. Um, so Eric, over to you. Yeah, no, so uh, boy, my, my experience in the um, cycling industry is a little bit, I, I kind of fell into it a little bit more organically. Um, was uh, I was actually working um, the director of marketing for a minor league baseball team here in uh, Madison uh, throughout uh, my college days. Took a job with the University of Wisconsin athletic department in their uh, marketing communications. So really, I was running sort of uh, a lot of press relations and um, marketing for uh, the men's football program, hockey, basketball, um, some of the, some of the bigger uh, programs here at the university. And uh, we was finishing up school. Was looking for you know something to move on to. And this uh, bicycle company in the in Waterloo, it's funny, I, I, you know, full disclosure, I really wasn't, I had a bike. I, I didn't know what brand it was. The brand had been long scratched off. So bicycle company called me and they said, you know, we'd like you to come out to Waterloo and do a, do an interview. And I told them I, I wasn't really interested in moving to Iowa. Um, the only uh, Waterloo <laughs> at the time that I was familiar with was in Iowa. So, um, and, and, they and, they still, were, they, and they still they, gave you the job. <laughs> Yeah, the point. Their response was like, "Okay, that, that we agree that you don't have to move to Iowa. Why don't you come up to Waterloo, Wisconsin, and and here?" So I came up and I uh, did a little presentation. And it's funny they asked me, they're like, "Oh, do you, um, I, yeah, do you, do you have a bike?" I said, "Yeah, yeah, I have a bike." And I said, "What kind is it?" And I, I replied, uh, "I believe it's a red one. It's red." And uh, I have to be honest with you, I have no idea how I got hired. Um, really, after that interview, but. Um, you know, I mean, it's funny. It, it, it Trek's an interesting place. So I started. That was the, oh gosh, that was May of 2005 um, that I started at, uh, at at Trek and started out as a very you know entry level uh, marketing coordinator, um, just kind of supporting the rest of the marketing department. And there, I moved on to actually created a position within the company. No one was really paying too much uh, marketing attention to our sort of non competitive pavement town based products. You know, you're more city riding, urban bikes, cruisers kids, that kind of stuff. And really, that was sort of what I was most passionate about, really, at the time, was just love the competitive side, of course, but also getting more people on bikes for more yeah, more trips and more more reasons. Then, uh, yeah, from there, moved on to uh, the public relations side of the company, and then was able to yeah, do had some success there, and then moved on to the, uh, the brand. I took over more of the brand marketing, brand communications. And so, yeah, so that's, that's kind of what I'm doing now. And so, really, I mean, just through my experience, there, at, you know, in my 11 years have just grown into just a very passionate cyclist. And, um, yeah, it's, it's something that, you know, it, it's really the, the thing that kind of fills my days. Aside from uh, whatever my kids are up to, that's, uh, that's the passion. That's a great story, Eric. Um, I guess I'm, I'm curious, while, while, we're, while we're talking to you and about Trek, obviously part of me wanting to kind of do this episode about direct-to-consumer was sort of to get mm-hmm. a point on, you know, what had been going on at Trek leading up to this announcement when was it the back end of last year that you were going to start sure. selling online with delivery through retailers? Mm-hmm. I, guess, I, I, you know, I'm curious to sort of learn a little bit more about that project within Trek and maybe your involvement. I don't know how long were Trek working on it. Um, sure. You know, what was the sort of scale of it within Trek in order to get to that announcement? I think it was at Interbike, wasn't it? Or, or just pre-Interbike last uh, year? It was, yeah, it was, actually, it was actually at Trek World. It was at our, um, our August okay. show. Yeah. Um, you know, I can, t- I can say, you know, we had really been working on that for, but I mean, if you really want to, if you really back it up a, a while, we, we had been paying very close attention to the online trend for a number of years. Um, it's, uh, it, it was something that had been growing rapidly. I mean, exploding, really, in, in, the, in our international markets. I was really just kind of starting to make a few inroads into the North American market. And we, we took a look and, you know, we looked at really, we looked at a couple options, boy, about a year and a half ago. We looked at all the options on the table and we said, okay, we, we, we kind of narrowed it down to three. And we said to ourselves, you know, we've, one, we could ignore the existence of the internet completely, ignore that anybody wants to buy anything online and that it hasn't changed the world. That didn't seem like a very realistic or viable option uh, for any kind of future. The second option we looked at was, well, okay, well, we could start selling, you know, we could build a website and build an e-commerce platform, start selling online and, and um, you know, hope our retailers catch up and, and figure it out. We knew that that, on um, the kind of scale, especially in North America, to rely on our retailers to individually do that and have success in that as, as one whole 
piece would be really, really difficult. So what we did is we, we took a look at a third option that we thought was the be- uh, probably the best one for us. Was what we can do is we can support the retailers that have really Trek built its success and built its brand on for, you know, since 1976. We could build on that success, bring those retailers into a, the digital world with, along with Trek and really create what we believe is really the future of the way people buy products, which is just a really, really solid omni-channel. Great retail, uh, great online. So yeah, it was really about two years that uh, ago that we started working on that, leading up into the launch of the website, which I think was in uh, November of last year. Okay, I, I'm I'm curious. Did it the sort of scale of the project internally? You know, did it require you to go out and and hire extra people and to staff up in areas where you know you maybe didn't have the the necessary expertise prior to that? Yeah, actually, it did. You know, it's funny in. In our areas of, of web technologies, IT, supply chain, we actually um, built a new distribution center concurrently with, with while we were developing the e-commerce platform. We built a new distribution center here, so a physical space that would support um, an e-commerce future. Uh, so that you know that um, all new sort of a lot of logistics people and supply chain experts were sort of are hired and brought on to handle that piece of the business. And you know a lot of it has really been changing along a lot of the existing roles that we have. You know, a lot more of what I do now has been shifted from, you know, print media or something maybe more traditional into a lot more digital digital marketing where you're looking at a lot more, you know, email, you're looking at a lot more social advertising. So in, in some areas, we really just made sure that we were addressing um, what the new realities were. And then in some other areas, we did staff up um, and really make some pretty significant investments in our uh in our people Mm -hmm. i I guess a question for you both do you you think there are functions which are you know more critical than others or more challenging than others in these business models that you really have to get right yeah i I mean i think that uh customer consumer expectations and this is where the business model between trek and what i know from competitive and backcountry and now rafa where they maybe differ a little bit consumer expectations of D- delivery, you know, transparency about I've ordered my stuff, you know, wh- where is it? When am I going to see it? Yeah, how will it be delivered? What, you know, the, the, the kind of the door-to-door experience is important when you're dealing directly with consumers. Trek is you know, shielded from that to some degree because it's delivering to dealers. You know, you, you ship the bike the same way you always ship a bike. You're shipping a bike to a dealer and it's, you know, semi-assembled state, I guess you could say, to the extent that it's assembled in Asia. So when you're selling things consumer direct with circa 2016, it's less an issue of, you know, if you're an online bike retailer, how do other online bike retailers handle the, the speed of delivery and the experience of what it's like to open up a box with you know, some kind of purchase that has a lot, you know, potentially a lot of emotional meaning to you. Um, your, your competition is not other bike retailers. Your competition is Amazon. Your competition is Zappos. Um, how accurate is your shipment uh, in terms of the contents of the shipment? There's a lot of stuff in there. How fast does the shipment get there? What's the cost of the shipment? Your peer group is is fairly it's fairly broad um, because most consumers out there who are going to want to buy a Trek or they're going to want to buy Rafa or they're going to want to buy a replacement Shimano cassette, they're also buying a lot of things from Amazon. Is my 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 strong suspicion, and because of that. You need to be able to compete with Amazon in terms of that delivery and logistics experience. So that's pretty important in my view. And that's um, something as the bike industry has evolved with e-commerce and has evolved with having a consumer direct model. It seems like something that's small, but it's, it's actually fairly large in the mind of the consumer. Uh, related to that is customer service. Having, if not 24-7 customer service, having really attentive customer service that's there most of the time is uh, online customer service is, is really crucial. You drop the ball in terms of the quality of an email response or your availability with live chat or, or you know, your availability to pick up the phone, et cetera. That's, uh, you know, it's kind of a, it's something that threatens confidence, uh, the confidence that a consumer is going to have in uh, doing business with you. So that's something that's changed a lot. And I think the, the final piece of it is what kind of content do you have on your site? Are you inspiring uh, customers, are you compelling customers to buy? Are you providing enough rock solid information to 
help them make technical decisions, whether that's about sizing or, uh, you know, Ultegra versus Durace or whatever that might, other, you know, technical types of questions they might have. There's more pressure put on content uh, serving as a, uh, a teaching tool as much as a, a marketing tool. So that's also something that's changed. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up, Brendan. I mean, that's the whole customer service question is something that, you know, in, in, in sort of my brief experience at Canyon, it was, it was always a challenge, really. I mean, it's, they make fantastic products and the price points are amazing. Um, trying to combine that at the same time with, you know, with giving really, really top level customer service that people's expectations are set from other online retailers that have nothing to do with, with the bike industry. It's, um, I think it's something that faces everybody. But um, I, I guess kind of related to that, I'm curious whether both of you um, have got sort of in your mind, you know, other companies out there that are really benchmarks that, that, that you look to for sort of excellence in this, in this type of business model. And I don't know whether it's the type of companies that you would, you would purchase from that you, you know, you look to replicate some of their best practices. Any, any thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, we took we took a lot of we looked at a number of different companies in sort of the and in in that space, you know. And to Brendan's point, really, the 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 door to you know purchase the door experience is really, I think, one of the most important things in in, in e-commerce. And I mean, in, especially when you get into the social media and the, the number of channels that you have for consumers to reach out to you. We looked at a number of different companies, um, you know, uh, for everything from Patagonia to you know, you look at a company like uh, Amazon. There's, and there's, we actually even benchmarked a couple of retailers who did a little bit of um, what we would co- kind of reverse of the process that we were doing. We actually looked at a couple of retailers that were really solid in the um, e-commerce space that so were actually moving into more brick and mortar. Uh, so uh, we, we benchmarked a couple. One of them that stands out was a, the uh, clothing company, men's clothing company, Bonobos. Which was I'm, actually I'm, I'm, a, I'm a huge I'm a huge fan of them as well. I think I think yeah, is, yeah. is amazing. Yeah, yeah, and then and, and to Brandon's point too, when you when you're really looking at your content mix and in an e-commerce um, environment, you really do need to pay a lot closer closer attention to the educational and sort of customer support side of yeah. things. Bonobos had done a really nice job of that, and we were really interested in studying how they would bring how you know they would bring that. Starting out, you know, how they would bring the success that they've had online with doing that and how they would bring that into their retail spaces. Which yeah, is a little bit more close to what Trek was really trying to kind of accomplish is really matching that, that message and that voice in, in two very separate places. Yeah, it, it's funny. You don't, it, you don't at, first, at first hand think that there are parallels between men's trousers and selling bikes on the internet, but there, there are a lot of similarities in that they're quite complex products that in the past have required somebody to go into a shop to be able to buy it in person. And I guess Bonobos figured out a way to make that work online. And then what's, what's now even more interesting is that they're one of these retailers like Warby Parker and others where they've built this big business online and then they're now going back to, to having their own brick and mortar retail. And we, you know, we, and we looked at the, the, the trouser situation and thought, well, it's, it's the same problem with buying a bike online. It's fit. Fit is everything. And fit is, <laughs> is probably the biggest question that everybody has. And okay. So how is uh, a company where fit is everything addressing that? And, and yeah, so I, I think that was, that was probably one of our more, I think, eye opening, uh, benchmark what about on your side brendan well i think it's it's interesting from uh i think you have to ask yourself what are the standards that consumers have and how are they setting those standards so i think we all agree you know amazon to a large degree maybe to a certain degree zappos i don't know if zappos you know to, to where, where it is on its kind of arc as a business right now but you know, there's definitely a time where zappos and this service mentality that Zappos had uh, was uh, something that was, it was a high bar. It's an expensive bar to meet, but to the extent that companies like um, Zappos and Amazon create broad scale consumer expectations about what the delivery experience is going to be like and the customer service experience is going to be like, you look at those companies and say, that's the bar that we, at least we have to, to, to aspire to meet. I don't know if we can meet it so that's that's from um, you know in those categories of logistics and service. Then you just you can just look at other categories. For speaking for let's say uh, you know my time at Competitive Cyclist, 
where technical content and educational content was crucially important to us. We actually didn't look at retailers, but we looked at media companies. You look at companies like CNET, where they can take a product and they produced really compelling content from a lot of different angles from, you know, let's say it's a, a new camera. The day the camera shows up onto their you know, shipping dock, the first day, they just tear it open and they would do this amazing 60 second video, of just a first look at what this camera looks like and what their initial impressions are. And you know, they don't really get to test it. They don't get to use it, but it's that thrill of putting their hands on it the first time they could convey that in uh, exciting, engaging content. And over time, they could take this same product and uh, do uh, additional pieces of content on it, whether it's video content or written content. But you, know, you look at, at, at how companies like CNET handle content, and that was a lot more interesting than what any other retailer was doing. So as we thought about content at Competitive, the way in which we think about content, we thought about content at Backcountry, you know, we, we, we were inspired as much by professional content creators and media companies as we were retailers. And so anyways, you can just segment out the, you know, the experience, the e-commerce experience in a, in a fairly granular way by themes, you know, logistics, service, content, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And it's, it's, it's pretty easy to figure out where most people are spending most of their time. It's more than an 80-20 rule. It's like a 90-10 rule. And it's easy to find those, um, those inspiring companies that are setting the standards in any, in any given area. And you just, you know, you allow yourself to get inspired and you try, and you know, we just tried to uh, meet those standards within the context of bike retail. Yeah, you know, you just people are are breaking um, uh, breaking new ground in terms of you know in terms of these areas and e-commerce experience all the time. So you, it's a matter of being a student of the internet, being a student of digital commerce. You know, constantly learning by you know what your peers and what your competitors are doing and trying to emulate those standards or exceed those standards. Yeah, I, I, you you brought up a really interesting point there of saying that it's you know it's obviously an expensive bar that's set with delivering really good customer service, and I think what a lot of people don't appreciate is the number of you know people, manpower, resources that you need to staff a customer services operation. I'm you know I'm curious. I I can explain a little bit about what we had in in Canyon in the UK. I'm I'm curious to sort of if, if you can share anything from either competitive or backcountry and equally at, at Trek as far as, you know, the number of people you have sitting there manning the phones, manning the emails, manning the live chat, and, and just to, to give a sense of, of, of exactly what's involved behind the scenes. Yeah. Well, there, you know, there's a lot of flexibility to it. It's what it boils down to is what kind of experience do you want to offer? Um, the fancy pants you know, e-commerce phrase is what, you know, what are your SLAs? What are your service level agreements? for the various customer service channels. So, you know, you know what your email volume is on average, you know what your call volume is, you know what your live chat volume is, and you need to make a determination in terms of what kind of service do you want to give customers. Um, if you get an email right now, what's a reasonable service level? Is it answering the email in an hour? Is it answering in six hours? Is it answering in 24 hours? And, you know, in terms of live chat, in terms of how, how many live chats, so when a customer initiates a live chat, how quickly, uh, do you want one of your agents answering that live chat? Is it 10 seconds? Is it 30 seconds? Is it five minutes? Uh, what kind of abandonment rates are you going to be comfortable with in terms of customers initiating a live chat but not getting service? And the same, you know, basically is true for for uh, the telephone as well. Uh, do you want it answered on the first ring, the third ring? Do you are you comfortable with 20% of the calls coming in don't get answered? You you ask yourselves these questions, and then you can staff um, a customer service center accordingly based on what you want the service levels to be. If you believe that high service levels then translate into customer conversion and, and sales and revenue, then you can you know, justify a substantial uh, you know customer service expense. But it is, you have a lot of levers in front of you and you can make it a pretty, with a company like Backcountry, where during the Christmas season, we would have you know, shifts of a couple of hundred people at, at a time. It becomes very quantitative and it becomes a kind of a, a, a math problem to solve um, based on what your expected, again, contact volumes are, what your ambitions are for conversion rates, and therefore what kind of staffing you want to do. At a company like Competitive, we were 
significantly smaller. We had a smaller staff. We had a much higher bar for um, agent, I would say, knowledge, deep technical knowledge of the products that we sold. So um, we, we couldn't be quite as precise or surgical with how we staffed um, our customer service center. It was a little bit of a sunk cost because we were so invested in having really high quality people with really extraordinary product knowledge because, you know, again, educational content and acting like jungle guides for customers to be able to understand, should I buy product X or product Y? Should I buy a, a Conti Grand Prix 4000 tire or a Vittoria Open Course or CX tire? Really having a good answer for that kind of question. It just takes a lot of investment in education and staff. And it's, it's when the staff is, is, well compensated and sort of lavishly educated. It's you can't really flex up and down just to save a little bit of payroll um, because you're already so invested in these people. So it was a, a little bit different in the environment between um, you know competitive and backcountry in that respect. Mm-hmm. What what about over at Trek, Eric? Do you, do you find that you um, are a lot of customers still going to a, an end retailer for those questions, or did did you have to field a lot more of them directly when you? started this new business model? Yeah, you know, it, but, I mean, the difference between um, the, the track and would, between backcountry and, and competitive would have really would have been that a lot of, so many of those questions and so much of that is, is, is handled at the retail level where the, so much of the conversation around our products and around our um, brand goes, goes, happens between retailer and consumer. So, you know, it, our history with, with direct-to-consumer communication was, was not probably at the volume that you, that you would see from competitive or, uh, or back countries. But, you know, we, we, for a number of years, you know, we, we handle a lot of warranty claims. And we, there's another, a lot of different consumer interactions throughout the years. It's, it's become more and more, obviously, with the advent of social media, with that conversation, those conversation uh, channels have, have uh, forced us to focus a lot more uh, on the social and on the direct communication. And then, you know, with the launch of the website, we did step up in, in uh, the customer service area, knowing that, you know, the call volume was going to increase. We, we didn't have really a, an idea of really at how much rate. I think it's, it's been a little bit higher than we had originally anticipated. But uh, the nice thing is that, um, as Brand said, you know, we were egg, so it, it's pretty flexible situation. We, we were actually very surprised by the number of online chats that we were doing initially. Uh, it seems that that's a, uh, that, that's a channel that a lot of consumers, especially in the North American market, want to utilize. Um, it was something we offered right at launch. There was a lot of considerable, or considerable discussion around what we wanted to uh, offer right, right at uh, the time of launch, knowing that we were going to have to scale these things. But uh, yeah, so we, that, that was definitely a, uh, a surprise to us. And then, you know, you've got uh, retailers with uh, that that have their own questions. So, and so much of that happens in the everyday conversations that they have with their um, you know sales representatives. So, we really look at customer service as really not just one department or one one person's responsibility. At Track, it's really it is the responsibility of almost every single person from whether or not your job is actually talking on the phone to consumers or you're an engineer and you pack extra tubes in your jersey pocket because you know you're going to, when you go for a ride, because you know you're going to see somebody with a flat who needs help. And so for us, customer service really is, is kind of a very holistic thing at, at, at the company. That, that's, that's an interesting way to look at it, with people going out for rides with spare tubes in their pockets. <laughs> yeah, it, it's just one of those things, you know, it's, it's, we really do. It's sort of like it's everybody's job to take care of, of not just trek owners, but just cyclists in uh, general at, at the company. So. It's a great story. You, you, should, you should shout about it a bit more. <laughs> okay, that's, that's you know that's one of the things about being a Midwest company, though. It's tough to it, you know, humility yeah. definitely comes with, it comes with the territory. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. I guess just changing tack a little bit. I'm 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 curious to get both of your your takes on sort of you know um, what this is going to look like in a couple of years. You know, there's lots of change happening at the moment. Big brands like Trek Giant uh, uh, are integrating online into their offer. You know, can you going to be in the USA? sometime very soon um like how do you think this is all going to shake out what's it going to look like what's specialized going to do you know you know for us we really we really do believe that the future is going to be a um a great omni-channel presence that you're going to have i i don't necessarily see the entire industry headed headed one way or the other anymore you know really what what 
what the, what's happened really in the world is the consumer has the power now. It's really the consumer that has, and, and the customer that is now telling you how they want to shop, how they want to interact, and and they, they have so much more control over those relationships. And there's going to be some some that are super comfortable and want that to be a digital experience all the time. You're going to have others that are going to want a uh, you know more more of a traditional brick and mortar. But you know we know that. Cycling is, is, is an interesting thing. You know, a website can do a lot of great things, but a website cannot fix a flat tire. A website cannot tune your bike. A website cannot, you know, bleed this. A website cannot fix suspension. So, you know, while there is a huge future for, for online, I think there's just as bright a future for the retailers that do it the right way. And I think you do that by the right way by offering great service and embracing digital as another opportunity to, to grow your business. Okay, I guess that that idea about retailers doing it the right way—that's something I'd like to come back to. But maybe Brendan, what's your take on where where things are going? Yeah, well, I think the you know we are at an interesting um, uh, at an interesting crossroads in the uh, kind of the, the the history of bike retail. Uh, what's interesting is that for the bulk of the time that I have been involved in bike retail, it's just been quite some time. The, the conversation's always been about what's best for the retailer, what's best for the retailer, what's best for the retailer. My perception is that the big brands, you know, view the retailers as being their end customer. And so uh, programs and, and just the overall structure and the overall conversation um, was focused on retailer first and customer second. I think that the, the advent, the proliferation of the internet has made it undeniable that the most important party in all of this is actually the end user and it's not the retailer. And I think where the, the rubber is going to hit the road on that has to do with how, what does multi-channel end up looking like from the vantage point of the retailer? If you look at the, the weak point, if you look, if you take kind of the spectrum of the bike industry uh, experience, so you go, you back up all the way to Asia where bikes are, designed, built, assembled, and shipped from. You look at, you know, you go to places like Waterloo or places like Morgan Hill where bikes are designed and marketing is conceived of. You look at, and then you look at the, the IBD or the retailer, you know, the weak link in the chain is the, is, the, is the retail experience, the weak link in the chain economically or retail economics. Um, you look at NBDA data and the annual reporting they do. And you, know, you look at the economics of, of high profit, what the NBDA calls high profit retailers. These high profit retailers are barely breaking even. High profit by the definition of the NBDA is I think 3% EBITDA margin. I mean, it's, it's just, it's, it's frightful. And I, and I think what, what, where the weak spot is, the weak spot is the IBD. And the question becomes, how does the IBD function when um, business is being shifted from their stores to the internet when, you know, IBDs literally can't afford to house as much inventory as they formerly housed. Sort of what is the purpose of the IBD and what is the economic viability of the IBD? And if I had to venture a guess, understanding everything I just described, number one, and then number two, looking at other industries, you know, we talk about Warby Parker, we talk about Bonobos, these great multi-channel companies, what you don't see are truly great brands, truly great omni-channel brands building their brands through independent third-party retailers. Uh, Patagonia is not great because the outdoor store down the street from me sells Patagonia puppy jackets. Patagonia is great because it makes great products, great brand identity, um, great multi-channel that's direct to consumer, shipped to their doorstep, e-commerce, or you know, catalog business. It's its own network of retail stores, impressive retail stores, really beautiful pieces of real estate all throughout the U.S. They own that experience in an end-to-end way. And so the disconnect, in my view, from looking at a Trek or a Specialized versus a Warby Parker or a Bonobos or a Patagonia is that great brands like Trek and Specialized don't really own the retail experience. They don't own the omni-channel experience. They're still very much focused on the dealer and not enough on their own brand and how they own the relationship between their own brand and their end users. So if I had to venture a guess, and this is just a a wild ass guess, is you look five years into the future, 10 years into the future, rather than companies like Specialized or Trek relying on hundreds or thousands of 
basically non-economically viable mom-and-pop bike shops. Um, what I would venture is that companies like Trek and Specialized will actually own their own retail stores. They will the, the management of those stores will be managed by retail operations team. You know, there'll be a retail operations team in Waterloo. Those retail operations teams will then integrate into individual you know, regional retail management, individual store management, where Trek can ensure that it owns the uh, the integrity of the experience all the way from what the marketing is like and how the bikes are designed all the way to to how um, um, you know what the experience is like at retail because I agree there's always going to be a future for physical bike retail for all the reasons that you just mentioned you know you do have to have service you do have to have your brakes split you do have to have bikes fit you have to have flats fixed etc but you go into 90% of the Trek retailers out there, you go into 90% of the specialized retailers out there. And it's just, it's kind of a mediocre experience. It's disjointed from the perspective of, do I buy Bontrager tires or do I buy Continental tires? Do I buy Bontrager shoes or do I buy uh, Shimano shoes? It's just, it's, it's confusing. Uh, there's not continuity. And uh, that I think is going to have to change for specialized in Trek, which are best brands we have in the industry, for them to truly become great brands in the sense of Bonobos or great brand in the sense of Patagonia, is they're going to have to have end-to-end ownership of their experience rather than having this, you know, mediocre retail experience where, you know, not always professional, um, again, independent mom-and-pop retailers are the most active point at which consumers are interacting with the brand. Uh, and so I, I, I would venture to guess and I would hope companies like Trek and Specialized will literally have hundreds of their own stores that they own. Uh, it's not concept stores. It's not franchises. It's not IBDs, but you know, stores that they truly own. Once, once they take that step, I think they become truly full-fledged, amazing omni-channel brands. And, you know, if I was sitting at the, you know, at the, at the board level on at one of those companies, that would be the thing that I would be obsessed on. How do we ensure the quality of the, of the environment, the quality of the education being provided consumers, the quality of the, the, the merchandising and just the quality of the end to end experience that represents the brand at all potential touch points of the brand. You look at any other industry, that's how great brands operate. It's yeah. only in the bike industry where you're reliant on these, um, Again, non-economically viable you know, mom and pop retailers. And, and Brendan, it's it's no coincidence that the picture that you're painting uh, seems rather familiar to a, a well-known British sort of high-end cycling uh, clothing brand. <laughs> sure, sure. But you know, Rafa, even you know, we have ten retail stores now. We have a great e- e-commerce business and yep. ten retail stores. But the the scale of our business and the scale, the kind of the complexity of the products that we sell and the, the, I would say the imperative for there to be great service is much higher on a brand that sells bikes um, um, and, and other really technical products, wheel sets, et cetera. Yep. Uh, so I think that for us, we're tr- yeah, Rafa, we're trying to provide it's, it's, it's the need for physical retail is it's, it's, it's a completely different set of reasons why we're doing it. It has much more to do with trying to create a, um, a, a, an environment in which we all celebrate cycling, Mm -hmm. uh, an inspiring environment where we do that. But it's, it's, I think a lot different for a bike company that has, um, again, a much broader range of goods and much more complex goods. Yeah, I, I, I guess just before I move on to Eric, I, I'm I'm curious with with Rafa. That's been a sort of uh, a noticeable trend over the last few years in terms of pulling out of independent retailers um, and 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 moving towards you know this network of Rafa Cycle Clubs and, and completely owning the the retail experience. Is that is that fair? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we understand that we, um, you know, we want to own the relationship with the customer because it's, we are inspired by our customers. We want to inspire our customers. That relationship is, is so crucial, uh, to our success. Uh, but the, the one other kind of PS to all of this is that the, and this is, this is not Rafa's position. It's, you know, take a, a step back. So a, a competitive cyclist, we were Rafa's biggest wholesale account. 
in, in the world. So this is where I originally got to know them. I got to know the brand incredibly well. I was still running competitive sites. We were fired by Rafa, ironically, because Rafa wanted to fully North America for the sales of Rafa clothing. So I, I've definitely seen both sides of the coin here. But the, the truth is, is that IBDs do, uh, and this is Brendan Quirk talking here. This is not you know Rafa person talking here. IBDs do it terrible job merchandising clothing. Um, they don't have a whole lot of inventory of clothing and they don't sell a lot. Again, you go back to NBDA figures. It's a beauty because you go back to the data. It's, it, it makes the conversation so um, uh, unemotional and objective. But you go to NBDA data or you go to Leisure Trends data. And what the fact of the matter is, is that bike shops do a terrible job selling clothing. They don't sell clothing. If you take out helmets and shoes and sunglasses, my analysis, which I'm sure could be wrong, but my analysis is that IBDs, you take the aggregate IBD revenue on an annual basis in the United States, less than 2% of revenue comes from clothing. It's just, it's de minimis. And it's, it's you know, one reason why it doesn't make sense for Rafa to place a big bet on IBD selling its clothing is that IBDs don't do a particularly good job of selling clothing. It's, it's, that's just a fact of the matter. It's just not how people buy clothing. People buy clothing generally online, whether it's bike clothing, whether it's blue jeans, whatever it might be. And again, it's just another, I think uh, that much uh, more of a reality check as we talk about how IBDs just not an economically viable business to be in. It's very, very risky. And the fact that people aren't buying clothing uh, at IBDs is just a, another reason that may, uh, that indicates how challenging that business is. Yeah. Um, so, so, Eric, what's what's the word at Trek on all of this then? How, how do you see things? Yeah, I mean, you know, Brandon makes some, some great points. It's, um, we have a huge, long, long history now, about 40 years of really building that brand and building that relationship really through through retail. And, you know, it's it's a, it's a changing world out there. It's it's going to be very interesting, you know, the retail environments that you, that you see today. I think um, the brand's point are going to look very different, um, and that's not to say that um, I'm confirming um, yeah, or the speculation at all. But um, I, I think retail is going to have to change because I think consumers are changing. The people that are are buying the product have different expectations today than they did five years ago, and five years from now, they they will probably have even more refined. Um, expectations and it's just going to be i think the brands that continue to pay attention to that continue to address that are, are going to be the ones that uh um that are successful yeah do, do you again just on the question of benchmarking i mean do, do you look at other retail experiences which which you think um you know uh, um set a benchmark to to follow absolutely oh absolutely yeah um i mean because you know um we're consumers as well you know we have um you know, hundred uh, consumer interactions that we have in our personal lives and uh, every single day. So, you know, whether it's, you know, the, the great ones are well-documented, you know, you've got, you know, Patagonia and then doing a very well, doing a great job in the, in the active lifestyle space. You've got Apple who's, you know, obviously the darling of, of, of retail. And so, you know, you, you, yeah, you've got, you set those out and you say, okay, that's a great retail experience. Okay. How can we, and, and Brendan touched on it earlier. How do you how do you take what you appreciate or what you admire from those people, and how do you apply that to your current reality? And then how do you plan for more or to, to integrate more of that into the future? Um, and that's you know that's something that we're that we're working on right now. And yeah, right now we, you know we are we are dedicated to the independently owned bicycle dealer network, and uh, it is something that is going to continue to uh, to refine itself. But um, I, I think, and again, I go back to say, I think the future is bright. I think there's, I, I think there's a very bright future for retail. It's just going to be different than, than what it is. And I think the, the retailers and, and, and those within the cycling industry that embrace change and understand that change is inevitable and that it's constant are, are going to be the ones that find success. Yeah. Well said. <laughs> um, we're, we're almost out of time. I guess I did want to touch briefly on the whole wiggle chain reaction acquisition I don't think we're going to have much time to talk about it. I, an interesting thing came up in an article related to that in, in, on Bike Biz, and it was something the Wiggle CEO said that um, you know the growth for them was going to come through through capturing more market share rather than by growing the overall size of the market. And I guess it's a question for everybody in in the industry. You know, instead of being focused on 
kind of taking market share back and forth between competitors, should we all be focused a little bit more on, on growing that overall size of the pie for everyone? And so I guess, I, you know, as a sort of final thought, I just wanted to get maybe a couple of things from each of you on where you think the industry needs to focus on uh, or what the industry needs to do in order to, to grow that overall size of the pie for, um, for everyone. Well, I, I would, you know, I think the thing to point out is there's a lot of hype in the U.S. around Wiggle and Chain Reaction. I think the amount of business they actually do in the United States is surprisingly small. And the the they are very global businesses. Wiggle is amazing, actually, in how truly globalized it is. It's arguably the most globalized the most globalized business of any kind in the bike industry as far as how deeply integrated it is uh, in terms of language, in terms of currency, in terms of payment types, in terms of how it manages web domains, all this sort of thing. Uh, it is, it's a pretty mind-blowing business in that respect. That said, I don't feel like they have a lot of traction in the U.S., and I think the reason why is because Amazon has become the secret behemoth of the bike industry you know, I believe they do a monstrous amount of business in the bike industry. And it's going to be really hard for Chain Reaction and for Wiggle to um, to compete with Amazon in the U.S. So I think it's going to be that they're going to have a tough road to hoe in the, in, in, uh, in the U.S. But as far as the, the specific issues that you call out, you look at why road cycling has exploded in the U.K., which is you know, really a, a, so important to the growth story of Wiggle and Chain Reaction. I think it's due to two reasons. One is uh, from a cycling infrastructure standpoint, those governments have devoted a heck of a lot of money to cycling infrastructure. They've done so a lot more boldly than I think what you've seen in the U.S. There are pockets of really amazing uh, there are pockets of amazing progress in the U.S., what you see in terms of green lanes and you know, entire streets in, in midtown Manhattan or entire blocks being shut down for the use of you know, these outdoor parks and green lanes being put in and things like this. But still, the, the U.K. has done so much more in terms of uh, advancing, uh, I guess to use U.S. speak, to advancing you know, safe routes to school and, and, and things like that. That's issue one. Issue two, and you could probably speak to this better than I can, but there are actual tax provisions in the UK that make it so buying a bike yeah, is, I, I, you, in I was, a sense, government supported. So yeah, it's. Um, I, I was going to mention exactly that. It's called the Cycle to Work scheme. So it's a it's yeah. a way for people to to buy up to a thousand pounds, spend up to a thousand pounds on a bike, and what they can do is they can pay for it pre tax out of their salary in conjunction with their employer. Um, so essentially, they're they're just buying the bike tax free, and it's yeah, it's lit a rocket under sales of yep. up to thousand pounds, primarily commuter bikes, but lots of people are actually using it to you know to buy a pair of expensive wheels or something like that. Um, yeah, and, and I, I, it's interesting from an industry standpoint in the U.S. You don't hear much in the way of trying to emulate that you know, using the little bit of lobbying power that yeah. that, um, that we have in Washington rather than just having it for, you know, road infrastructure, but actually talking about tax benefits like this. I think that is the the story that in the U.S. has gotten zero play. Yeah. But if the U.S. bike industry could figure out a way to get that push through Congress, um, it would do amazing things from the standpoint of getting people on bikes, getting people to buy more Trek bikes, getting people to buy more Rafa uh, apparel and, and buying everything in between. That to me is the um, it was kind of a one-time thing for chain reaction for Wiggle and for the UK bike market. That's kind of it's, it's kind of genie in a bottle stuff that you know got let out once. There's probably not going to be another thing like that. So um, to what extent chain reaction and Wiggle can do anything but steal share? I think that really is all they they're going to be able to do because I don't feel like there are other similarly massive levers that can be pulled to get more people out on bikes. Yeah. The other thing I would, I would add to that. Um, I mean, I, I don't necessarily agree with you about the infrastructure piece in the UK. Yes. It's better in, in than in, in the U S but I still, it's not great over there. Um, I think for me, the biggest thing that's, that spurred that growth in, um, in the UK has been the success of, of athletes like Wiggins, Cavendish, Chris Froome, London, 2012 Olympics, um, all of a sudden, cycling just became so much more mainstream than it was 
you know, five, 10 years earlier. And, and I think that's really spurred growth in, especially on the roadside, people buying 1,500 pound bikes, so in Rafa, going and riding their first sportif. I guess it's, it's been a sort of once in a generation um, experience with those, you know, with those athletes and those events that's driven it. Eric, what about from your side on um, the Trek view on this? I'm in complete agreement that I think you're really just looking at people trying to take bits out of an ever stagnant or growing the pie should be one of the, if not the most important thing that the bicycle industry is collectively focused on. I think that it needs to be. And it is all, from our perspective, it is all about providing people with the infrastructure to in, in which to ride. We've got, pocket, we've got pockets of success, as you guys pointed out. Um, but to grow the pie, especially within a country like the United States, we have to do a much, much better job of, of supporting those who are building and, and supporting cycling infrastructure. I think you see what happens when you do put in Greenlands, when you when a municipality or, or a city or, uh, um, or even a state, if, if, when they take ownership and say, we are going to be a cycling-friendly area. You know, it's something – Madison, Wisconsin, my hometown, was not, was not a great place to, to ride a bike in past 10 years. But in, it's because that – it's because the city government, the local government, said we are going to be a great city. And then they started putting together a plan. Now it's one of the best places in, in the country to, to ride a bike. But, I mean, if, if we want a bigger pie, if we want increased load share, we have to do a much better job, I think, collectively as an industry, with supporting those – that are out there and focused on creating more cycling infrastructure. And to the credit of Trek and to thinking about Madison, I mean, I feel like so much great advocacy has come from Trek. So much great advocacy has come from people like Chris Fortune at Cyclops. I mean, it's, Wisconsin's got quite the impressive mafia in terms of people really advocating on these issues. So in terms of giving credit where credit is due, um, there's a lot of good stuff coming out of the bike industry in Wisconsin in that respect. I think that's, that's something we could end a whole other episode talking about is, is the, uh, you know, the area of advocacy and what the industry should be doing you know, to help grow that pie as a whole. I think we're pretty much out of time, so I guess I just wanted to wrap up and thank both of you for, for participating and, and providing some, you know, some interesting thought and debate and, and comment on this, this topic. Yeah, we'll, we'll wrap things up there. Wonderful. I enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Thanks Thanks so much for having me. That's it for this month. I'd love to hear any comments on this topic on the Cycling Business Podcast Facebook page or on Twitter at AJM Palmer.